Can you imagine changing your worldview to such an extent that you believe that suffering is a fellowship with the Lord Jesus? You know, I've had people in my life say that if you, if I really trusted Christ, I wouldn't be suffering from my physical infirmity. But Paul didn't say that because he rejoiced in the Lord, his suffering disappeared. No. He said, because I rejoice in the Lord, I glory in my infirmity. He didn't say my infirmity left. He said, I glory in my infirmity. Why? Because in glorying in his infirmity, the power of Christ was able to rest upon him. Grateful to be with you today and to share this with you. I want to thank you for your continued prayers and support of my ministry. Please continue to pray that um, the school would be able to open on time. Um, uh, and I know safely, but it's it's very important um, to me. Uh, I think even to my mental health to a certain degree to be able to go back to work. Um, in the next couple of weeks um, because this uh, shutdown and all this um, COVID-19 stuff has been very difficult. I haven't been at the school since March 13th and I, I've only been out of the house other than church like twice. And so it's been a, a big adjustment for me um, because I'm never one to just uh, sit on the couch and and stay at home and do stuff. I always want to be with people and uh, several friends that I would normally see multiple times in the summer I have not yet seen uh, this year in person and so that's very difficult for me. But I just covet your prayers going forward and I, I pray that in the Lord's time he would arrest this virus in a way that only he could get the glory and I believe that can happen. Um, but let's open the word of prayer before we begin our study today, okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. Lord, we know that you are uh, the great physician, that you are in control of everything. And so, Lord, we ask that you would arrest this virus, Lord. We, we call upon you to um, remove this this plague from our land, and we just ask that you would get the honor and the glory, or we pray that the lessons learned through this time would not be easily forgotten. We pray that you would draw all men closer to yourself, and we pray now that as we open your word, that you would indeed um, break to us the bread of life. Thank you, Lord, for being there with us, and now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I said, if you're taking notes, the name of my sermon today is The Cost of Paul's Conversion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who's a noted theologian from the World War II era, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Now, I must admit that I have never read it, um, but I've heard different things about it. And knowing the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I can honestly say 
that he paid a lot of cost for his discipleship to the Lord Jesus. There were a lot of ministers in in Germany at that time that just allowed Adolf Hitler to do what he was going to do and tried to keep their heads down and stay low. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not one of those people. And in this story of Paul, we see Paul has this dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, as we talked about last time. But there's going to be difficulties, you know. Remember, Jesus said to Ananias when he appeared to him, he said, Paul will suffer many things for my sake. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, but this is really just the beginning of that. And I'm sure there will be more to come as we continue through the book of Acts. But the first thing, the first cause, cost of Paul's conversion is that he had to flee for his life. Now keep in mind that this was a man who was causing other Christians to flee for their lives. The church was in Jerusalem, it was growing, it was vibrant. And then there was threats to the church at Jerusalem, and so they began to spread out. And they were fleeing for their lives. And actually Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus at the time, was on his way to Damascus with letters from the high priest that he could lock up and torture anyone who was of the way. This was not a man who simply walked up to people and reprimanded them for their beliefs. No, this was a man that was openly volatile to those who believed. And yet, when God does a work, aren't you glad that God doesn't do half a work in someone's life? When God touches a life, he changes it. Paul would later write these words. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So let's read in Acts 9, 23 to 25 and, and consider our first point that he had to flee for his life. Acts 9, verse 23 And after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying away was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. Imagine this, if you will. This man who had not too long before this ridden into Damascus, ridden on the Damascus road in triumph, basically up on his high horse. I'm going to get these Christians. Now he's one of them. And after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Now, an interesting thing I found about this many days phrase is this is a very similar phrase to in the Kings when Elijah says to Ahab, for many days it will not rain. 
this many days or this this uh, after that many days is referring to a long period of time and it is it is supposed by many that it was actually a three year period of time. Because shortly after Paul is converted, he goes to the desert in Arabia and he meets with Jesus face to face and he gets his marching orders. And he spends those three years preparing to be a leader in the church. But you just think about this whole idea that immediately, basically, as soon as he comes back, which from a human perspective, why would you come back? But as soon as he comes back, they want to kill him, and they're waiting night and day. That's some determination. And and that is sad but there's probably a lot of anger pent up in them because this guy who they thought was on their side who they thought was their champion is now following the very people that he went to pursue and they were laying in wait and somehow it comes to the ears of Saul that this is happening and that they're watching the gates so the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in the basket. This is very similar. The outer walls of the city would be very similar to like in Jericho when Rahab put the scarlet thread in her window so that the spies could remove her and her family from danger when Jericho came down. Remember what the spy said. The spy said, if you're not in the house, under guard of this scarlet thread, we have no, we bear no guilt over your blood. But she was rescued. And this is a very similar thing to what's happening to Saul. And I looked up um, to try to figure out who the Christians were that were releasing, that were helping Saul, um, because that none of them are named. And what I found was um, probably these were both refugees from Jerusalem and Damascus Christians. So this is a um, this is a common or the, the this is what is commonly believed. Because we know that the apostles have yet to accept him. So, um, I just want to read this little note about the three years. It says, And after that many days were fulfilled, this phrase is used by the Septuagint on Exodus 2.11 for a considerable length of time for many years. The Jewish writers observed that the phrase many days signify at least three days, for by days in the plural, number two must be, to be designed, and many signifies a third, or that at least one is added to them. But here it signifies three years, as also it does in First Kings 18.1, where it says, And it shall come to pass after many days, 
that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. In such a space of time is designed by the many days here, for which the apostle had stayed a little while at Damascus and preached Christ in the synagogues. And then he went to Arabia, where he continued about three years, and then returned to Damascus, where what is related happened to him. That's from John Gill's exposition of the whole Bible. So let's look at Paul's account of this in Galatians 1, 13 through 18. Galatians 1, 13 through 18. If someone gets there, one of the gentlemen, you may stand and read it for us, please. Galatians 1, 13 through 18. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Is that through 18? And then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with 15 days. All right, so the, the, it's interesting that the first apostle that he approaches is Peter. And I think Peter understood what it was like to fail God. Um, because Peter, like myself and like some other people, had a big mouth. And he talked a big game, but at the end of the day, without the Holy Spirit, you can't accomplish anything. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So we have a situation where Paul... Um, becomes a believer, and he's preaching Christ right away. He goes into the synagogues and he preaches Christ right away. But then God says, "We need. To, I need time to refine your message to make sure that you understand everything I want you to teach. So I'm going to call you away. It's interesting that there's a lot of waiting in the Bible. Remember, Abraham waited 25 years from the time that he was told that Isaac would be born first. He waited 25 years. To the point where he's like, can't Eliezer, who's the chief servant of my house, and he's like a son, can't he be my heir? And God said, no, one born of your own loins will be your heir. heir. And then Sarah said, maybe I'm supposed to have children through Hagar. And then Hagar gets pregnant and Sarah gets mad. Isn't that just like us? We... we we don't want to do it the way God wants us to do it, and then we get mad about the results. But then, at 99 years old, Isaac is born. And um, I find it interesting that after Sarah dies, Abraham get remarries and has six more children. Uh, that would be totally unheard of today for a 120-year-old to have kids. But it just shows you the way God works. And it shows you the miracle that he did 
in Sarah because we know for a fact that Sarah was burdened barren and unable to have children, but God allowed them to have children after waiting. Moses, when he was a young man, he thought he was going to deliver the children of Israel. Acts chapter 7 alludes to that. We talked about it. But God let him out of Egypt, let him out of his place of leadership, put him on the back of the desert for 40 more years leading sheep, and said, this is my training ground for you. And it humbled Moses so much that when God finally comes back and says, my assignment for you is ready, he said, I can't do it, Lord. And so waiting periods are an important part of God's economy. And that doesn't, and that encourages me to a certain degree, but it, but it also, the human part of me is a little annoyed by that because now I realize that I can't complain about waiting or I shouldn't complain about waiting as much as I do. Um, I just wanted to share this story. It says, Four years after the Titanic went down, a young Scotchman rose in a meeting in Hamilton, Canada, and said, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar on that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow, also on a piece of the wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say, they brought him back again a little nearer. And he said, are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Shortly afterwards, he went down and there alone in the night. And with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. And I, I like that story because it shows the unlikelihood of sometimes the most unlikely converts um, come to the Lord. We don't read about anybody praying for Saul of Tarsus to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But I wonder if there were some that did. Um, and I know I, I have ultimate faith to know that, at least in general, Stephen prayed for him because Stephen was a praying man. And he was a man of the gospel. And he was a man that the Holy Spirit flowed through to such a point that they said he had the face of an angel. You ever heard the common, the old saying, if you're happy and you know it, tell your face? <laughs> um, because some people... Like they sit in church and they have the most sour expressions on their face. But our faces should be glowing because people should know that we know Jesus. Peter and John were remarkable not because they were remarkable intellectual men, but because people knew that they had been with Jesus. And that should be the heart's cry of all of us that people would be able to tell that Jesus is a part of our lives. Okay, the second point. He became an outsider to everyone. He became an outsider to everyone. Acts 9, 26 to 28. Okay, he's back from his 
three years in Arabia. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto him how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. So we have this situation where now Remember, we said that there were people that used to work with Saul. They probably thought he was great. They probably looked to him as a leader. This was obviously not someone in the lowdowns. If he went right to the priest and got permission to persecute the church directly, this was somebody who was a leader. And then he turned his back on them. So they hated him, and they wanted to kill him, and they laid in wait. But on top of that, he goes to the apostles, and they're like, we think he's faking. He's playing the long game. He's pretending to be us so that he can take us out. And Barnabas, who we read about in Acts chapter 2, as the son of consolation or encouragement says, no, I've watched this man, I've been with this man, and he is the real deal. That is really, I believe, one of my callings is to encourage the brethren. Paul was an exhorter. He would say repeatedly, I exhort you. And that is really my my. Uh, passion, my heart's cry is to exhort those who love the Lord to love Him all the more, to shine brighter until the perfect day. Like I said, he, he seeks to join the disciples at Jerusalem, but they were all afraid of Him and believed not that He was a disciple. Perhaps part of that was um, Paul, you supposedly got saved and then you left for three years. Where have you been? What have you been up to? Have you been telling them all about us? I don't know what was going through their minds. But then Barnabas gets involved and he brings him to the apostles. Are we bringing our friends into the local church. You know, there, there's a lot of people who who go out and they street preach and they evangelize throughout the wherever their area is. And that's not a bad thing at all. That's an important thing. But we need discipleship too. My dad related a story once. He went to a church. I forget what the circumstances was, but he was he was at a church, and they had just had this Sunday school contest. And one of the things they tracked was the number of people that were saved during that Sunday school contest. And he said, one thing that didn't feel right to me when I saw that was 
He's like, there were so many empty chairs in that church. He's like, if that many souls had been one to Christ during that period of time, that church should have been bursting at the seams. Now that's not to say that God isn't working in the church that isn't doing that. It's only to say that leading people to Christ, leading people to the cross is only the first part of our responsibility to them. Paul didn't just lead people to Christ and and leave them to themselves. No, he wrote letters of encouragement. He said, I pray for you all the time with joy. I pray that you would be earnest. I'm jealous toward you with a godly jealousy. I want to preserve you as a spotless bride for our Lord. He took an active role in the churches that he ministered. He said things like, let your conduct be such that even if I'm not present, I would hear of your faith and your and and the fact that you are faithful to Jesus and I could rejoice. It wasn't enough just to say, guess how many people I led to the Lord today. Let's look at Acts 4, 36 and 37. Acts 4, 36 and 37 and learn a little bit more about Barnabas. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, with his translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it so, this Barnabas, he was an encourager and he was generous. Of course, this is the lead into the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and they wanted the recognition of Barnabas without the sacrifice, as we studied a while back. But the point is. That this permeated, this godly attitude permeated every part of Barnabas' life. And so Barnabas was the bridge. And he said, trust that this man is genuine. A lot of times when I'm going to a new place, if there's at least one person that knows me, I feel a lot better. Because they are the bridge to the rest of the situation. When I started officially working as an employee at the Potter's House, it was nice to be able to go into that high school for the first time and realize that there were people there that I already knew because of my years of volunteer work. Because it was still nerve-wracking as it was. If on my face... For thy dear name, shame and reproach may be. I'll hail reproach and welcome shame, for thou will remember me. See, Paul was getting reproach from the Christians and from the non-Christians, but God never forgot him. The psalmist said, If my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. 
Isn't that wonderful? We're never left hopeless. We're never left destitute. God always comes through for us. And Paul, even with this struggle, he continued to share the truth. That's my third point. He continued to preach the truth. Acts 9, 29 to 31. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him. Which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then all the churches, then had all the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And they were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So Paul goes through this persecution from the Grecians. And of course, whenever Jesus is in the picture in, in Acts, and they're trying to speak about the life of Jesus and, and the life-giving spirit that he offers, often the response is, let's kill him. I actually had a Facebook friend who I've never met personally, but he's a dear brother in the Lord post some really challenging things and he said this past week he got he got a letter from a guy who was a liberal professor across the country and the professor said you Christians are such troublemakers and if I could get in a time machine I would go back in time and I would murder Jesus Christ of Nazareth because you guys are troublemakers. And he said this. He said, it was tried once. And it failed. Because he is risen. What a wonderful reality we have. That they can try, they can kill our bodies. They can stop individuals from talking. They can burn William Tyndale at the stake. But they can't kill God. They can't kill the truth of the gospel. William Tyndale said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And after he died, the King James Bible was commissioned. Now, there's debates as to why. But it's a valuable treasure to many. And it came because People were faithful, and more importantly, God was faithful. His will will not be thwarted. You know, we should seek to do His will with all our hearts. But sometimes we get skittish about making a decision because we're afraid it's the wrong one. May I encourage you with these words? Man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. When this whole pandemic started, I was afraid of losing my podcast ministry because I was barred from coming into the studio. But the Lord saw fit to encourage me to learn how to produce it on my own and how to purchase equipment that would make it even better. 
And now I feel like I have even more liberty to share the truth of God's word through that podcast than I did before. Because I can do it right at home. And uh, this week we started a series on the I am statements of Christ. And our first one was, I am the bread of life. So it's interesting that that was kind of one of the focuses this morning. But God is good. His will is always accomplished. So... Acts 9. We see a couple things. First of all, we see the persecution of Paul. He's traded being a persecutor to being persecuted. This is why Paul was able to say with confidence, know this, that all who are in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Do you realize how much the Bible talks about the definitive article? Perhaps the one exception would be that the Proverbs don't always turn out exactly the way that we would hope they would. But for the most part, the Bible speaks in the definitive article. Why? Because it's the truth. Because the truth is not something just subjective. The truth is objective. The truth is definite. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Even that is a definitive article. He didn't say, I am truth, I am way, I am life. Because if he had just said that, it wouldn't be complete. It would be a choice. A choice among many. But he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Because you see, nothing else matters if you don't embrace him. And then, after after Paul's persecution by the Grecians, it says that the church had peace. But you want to have peace? Listen to this. Listen to how you have peace as a church. Then had the churches rest throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. You want to have peace? Walk in the fear of the Lord. You know, too often people act like, I I want the Lord, but I'm just going to tack him on. But Paul said, as I said earlier, in him we live and move and have our being. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Peace that passes all understanding. At a time when when I should be pulling my hair out with anxiety, I have my anxious days, my anxious moments, but for the most part, 
I can rest. And I can think about the great hymns like, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the goodness of thy loving heart. Or, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. At the beginning of this time, if you had told me on March 13th that you're still going to be home in August, I would have told you you were crazy. There's no way I can do it. But every day when I get up and I have my devotions and my prayer time, I say, this day, God, this day, get me through this day. And he always does. I like the meme on Facebook that I've seen several times. It says, if you're reading this, you've gotten through all the bad days of your life so far. What an encouragement. Let's look at John 14, verses 16 through 18. John 14, verses 16 through 18. Of course, this is part of the upper room discourse that Jesus gave before he went to the cross. If someone would find that and read it for me, I would appreciate it. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him not. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. And I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. You see, this Christian life would be a whole other ballgame if Jesus says, okay, you're once and for all redeemed, go ahead, live your life, and I'll be back someday. What did he say to the disciples when he ascended? He said, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he is here. We don't always understand the ways that he works. We don't understand why he allows kings and leaders to do the crazy things that they do. But we know that he is here. Even in the book of Esther, which is famously the only book that never directly mentions God, you can see God's hand. Remember Naaman, Haman, sorry, Haman went into the king and the king said, how should the king honor him who he delighted to honor? And Haman thinks, oh, this is so great. I'm going to be honored by the king because I'm an awesome dude. And so he lists out all these things that he wants to have for him. He's like, get your best horse, put your best clothes, get some of your best jewels. And then pray this person through the kingdom. And the king says, you have well spoken, go do those things to Mordecai. Can you imagine the Aegon 
Haman's face because he because not only is it not him, but it's the one that he hates the most. And then later he's hung on Haman's gallows on on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Because God was there. God never left Esther and Mordecai. Esther prayed for three days. Was she praying to thin air? No. She was praying to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Because he lives. Benjamin Franklin, who by his own admission was not a Christian, he told George Whitfield once that he was almost persuaded to become a Christian. But even he said, I know this to be true, that God governs in the affairs of men. I don't know how you live without that knowledge. And Jesus said, further in Hebrews, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So the question that I have for you is, have you met him? Do you know him? You can know the words. You can say, well, I've read the Bible backwards and forwards many times. You could say, well, I, I've been in church many times. But that's not the question. If anybody should have gotten to heaven for their religious zeal. It was it was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He said, I was the elite. I had everything. But then he said later when he was converted, he said, all these things I once counted gain, I count loss. And his new goal was this, that I may know him, that is Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Can you imagine changing your worldview to such an extent that you believe that suffering is a fellowship with the Lord Jesus? You know, I've had people in my life say that if, you, if I really trusted Christ, I wouldn't be suffering from my physical infirmity. But Paul didn't say... That because he rejoiced in the Lord, his suffering disappeared. No. He said, because I rejoice in the Lord, I glory in my infirmity. He didn't say my infirmity left. He said, I glory in my infirmity. Why? Because in glorying in his infirmity, the power of Christ was able to rest upon him. For when Paul was weak, when I am weak, then I'm strong. Why? Because Jesus said, you can do all things through me. I'm the one that gives you strength. In Philippians chapter 2 it says, it is God who worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. It's not of us. See, if you look through the Bible, you'll find story after story of people that the world, even people that lived with these people, would say, they're not the one to do this job. Even the great Samuel, who followed God with his whole life, was weak in this area. Remember, 
Consider the picture. God says, I've rejected Saul. Go to the house of Jesse and there you will find the next king. So Jesse's oldest seven sons come. They all pass before him and everyone, you know, as he goes through the first few, he's like, this must be the one. He's so strong, so confident. So everything that they need as a king. And God said to each one, I've rejected them. Because I don't look on physical appearance. I don't look on a man's countenance. I look at his heart. And the one whose heart is toward me is David, the shepherd. The youngest, the one who wasn't even called to the meal. Can you imagine being David that day, not even called to the meal when this great priest was coming, and then finding out that not only should you have been called to the meal, but you're going to be king of all of Israel. That's the economy of the God that we know. He visited this guy named Gideon. Perhaps you've heard of Gideon. He was threshing wheat in a wine press. He was hiding from the Midianites. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, the youngest son of Jacob. He was the youngest in his household. And he's minding his own business, threshing wheat. And the angel of the Lord, who I believe was Jesus, pre-incarnate, comes to him and says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon looks around, and he says, to paraphrase, What, you mean me? I'm the least of my brethren in the least house of Israel. Because when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us necessarily as who we are, but he looks at us through the lens of who we can be. And most importantly, he looks at us through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who takes cracked pots and puts them back on the potter's wheel and does them over again so that they can shine forth his beauty. And it's in the flaws that often the beauty shines forth the most. Because you can look at a situation and you can say there's no way that person should be able to do what they're doing, but they are. And what is the reason? It's because of Jesus. If you ever get a chance, I would encourage you to watch The Chosen, which is a uh, TV series about the life of Jesus done by Dallas Jenkins, son of Jerry B. It's very well done. And in the first season, first episode, Jesus, at the end of that episode, heals Mary Magdalene, and she talks to Nicodemus later. And he says, he's asking her about her being healed and being changed. And she essentially says, there's a lot I don't 
No, but the one thing I do know is that I'm a totally different person than I was. I was one way, I am that way no more. I follow Jesus now and I'll follow him for the rest of my life. I pray that that's your testimony. I would encourage you to trust him with the rest of your life. We don't know how long that will be. People get called home at various times. And to remember that it's all about Jesus. We like to add and and add importance to things that aren't Jesus and we get in trouble that way. Spurgeon went one day into Albert Hall where he was to preach on the coming Sabbath. In order to test out the hall with his voice, he mounted the platform and repeated the text. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Not long afterward, he received word that the repetition of that text had borne rich fruit. A painter at work in some part of the great hall was startled when he heard the voice of Spurgeon repeating in the empty hall the great sentence of of John's. The word so impressed him that he was converted and brought to Christ. It doesn't take three points in a poem for people to come to the Lord Jesus. All it takes is a yielded life and God to do the work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are so good to us. And we pray that you would preserve us on our ride home and help us to have a blessed um, rest of the day of rest. And that we would be refreshed for the week ahead. I pray for continued wisdom for our leaders. I pray even now, Lord, that you might work in the heart of Governor Whitmer and Perhaps it would be your will in a mighty and miraculous way bring her to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.